1: All right, we're done. You're good. Just joking. So um, school, right around the corner, for a lot of us. And how many of you know this feeling as a parent, and I don't care if it's like kindergarten, high school, or college, Like you know this feeling of like, they're just about to go into the classroom, they're just about to get out of the car and step up to the high school, they're just about to turn their back and head into their dorm, and you go, did I give them everything they need? It's like this powerless feeling that you have as a parent, right? This overwhelming feeling of desperation and deep love, and did I give them everything that they need to survive where they're about to head? And when that little backpack goes into the classroom and turns around, or the last book is shelved on the dorm room bookshelf, there is this sense in which we go, have I done everything I can to give them everything that they need? Anybody know that feeling? We're right about there. I think a lot of us feel that spiritually as well. I do as a dad, and I think about it for myself. We stand at the edge of an unknown culture. We see things shifting and moving in ways that none of us are really comfortable with, and we go, ah, do I have everything I need to prepare for this unknown? If you've ever felt that way or if you've ever asked that question. Today is going to be for you, because it's exactly what I believe the Apostle John has here at the end of 1 John. We're wrapping up our 10-week summer teaching series this morning through 1 John, and it's been a lot of fun. It's been hard work getting through 1 John But over these last five chapters, John has poured out his heart for this church that he deeply loves. He's been very direct, but he's been very kind. He's been very tough, but he's been very tender. He's got strong words that always come from a very soft heart. And then here, as he's about to wrap everything up at the end of chapter 5, it's easy to imagine John being that loving parent on the school steps going Have I given them everything they need? Like one last little piece of advice, just one last little thing before you go. That's our text this morning. Last thoughts for lasting change. Final words in a world that's falling apart. John wants to give this church one last shot at certainty. So 1 John 5, 13 through 21. We're going to close out this series. I want to give you three truths to cling to in a world gone crazy. (laughs) And you put them together, these these three truths teach us one thing, that certainty from God follows intimacy with God. We all want certainty, right? Spiritual certainty. We want to know everything's going to be okay. We want certainty from God. John wants to teach us that the only way we get that is intimacy with God. So, whenever you're reading God's word... Um, we need to remind ourselves that we're reading a different people group and a different culture in a different language on a different side of the world hundreds of years ago. And that culture and everything that surrounds it shapes what was written and what was read. Scholars call this cultural context, okay? And at this point, all the way through 1 John, we haven't done a ton of that, but we want to do that this morning because there's one piece of cultural context that I want to give you that shapes how John talks about what he says at the end. Now, whenever you hear the word Ephesus, Ephesus is a city, it's the city to which John wrote, it's the city that he pastored the church in. Whenever you hear the word Ephesus, I want you to think of something. I want you to think of the Temple of Artemis. For you note-takers, it's A-R-T-E-M-I-S, Artemis. Okay? She was the Greek goddess of fertility. And the entire Ephesian economy, their entire culture, was built around her temple, the Greek goddess of Artemis. Artemis' temple was a 43,000-square-foot complex lined with 127 marble columns, each 60 feet high. That's a football field that's taller than the Hoover Building. That is a massive deal. On your way down Main Street, if you were to visit first century Ephesus, you'd have to go to Artemis' temple. It's kind of just what you did. It's kind of like coming to Canton to visit the Hall of Fame, right? It's what they were known for. And so on your way down Main Street, on your way to Artemis' temple, you would pick up an offering to bring to the temple. It was usually some incense or it was a local wine, and you would bring that to the temple as an offering to Artemis. Bonus points if you picked up extra offering for the priest who worked there. Double word score if you engaged the services of a temple prostitute at Artemis' temple. Triple word score if you bought one of those little silver statues to Artemis that were made in the city. And take it home and put it on your mantle. True thing. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. But you put all of that together. The worship of Artemis. If you do it all right you get all your ducks in a row, check all the boxes, then maybe you'd have a good crop that year. If you did it all right, maybe, if you were pregnant, your baby would be healthy. If you did it all right, maybe your mom or dad, who was sick, would be made well. If you did it all right, Maybe. Spiritual certainty, knowing where you stand, is a value in Ephesus, and it's all tied to Artemis. And into that deep culture of profound uncertainty and darkness, John writes with a renewed purpose. Here it is in verse 13. Listen, he says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. This is John on the schoolhouse steps, saying, Look, I don't want you just to wonder. I want you to know. Your future isn't tied to the whims of a cultic goddess, but tied to a God who knows you, loves you, sees you, cares for you, and can rescue you. For John's audience, steeped as they were in this rising cultic culture, you had to know that was just unbelievable. That we can know God, we don't have to hope so. We can know. It's easy to imagine them gathered in their first century house churches and a husband turns to his wife and he goes, can you believe it? We can actually know God. We can know him. So all of that is the cultural context surrounding John's words for us this morning. So with his purpose blown wide open, let's get to it. Truth number one. Here you go. God is hears us this is the first truth to cling to in a crazy world truth number one God hears us and let's take a look in verse 14 here's what he says and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask we know that we have the request that we've asked of him Now he takes all of that, and now he's going to turn it horizontal. He says, if anybody sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. We're going to talk about that in just a second. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We're going to do a quick little study on that. This whole business of a sin that leads to death, this is unbelief in who Jesus is. Okay. Is there such a thing as an unforgivable sin? Yeah. What is it? Saying, Jesus, I don't want you. That's unforgivable because this is God's provision and you're rejecting that. And so John says look, 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 if you see somebody who's struggling with sin, who's wrestling, fighting against spiritual doubt, pray for them. But the real power in this passage is in verse 14. He's obviously talking about prayer here. He uses the word ask in verse 14, request in verse 15, and then he actually says prayer in verse 16. John gives us a couple insights into prayer that we really need to key in on, and we're going to take the next 10 minutes and just look at verse 14 because there's a ton in here that we've got to get right. And if John is standing on the schoolhouse steps, sending this church into a crazy world, this is the one thing that he makes sure that they're very clear on. So first thing we want to see, it's right there in the text, we come to God confidently. We come to God confidently. Now, maybe you've never thought about this, but everybody has a natural picture that comes to your mind when I say God. We all have a a picture that comes to our mind, a natural conception of what we think God looks like, and it drives our prayer life more than you'd really ever want to admit We drift into two extremes, typically. We either treat God too flippantly, or we treat God too fearfully. Flippantly. Let's talk about that one first. It looks like this. Here's what it looks like when we come to God too flippantly. right? We just kind of like waltz in. We go like, okay, hey, um, cosmic genie in the sky. Here's what I need. Rattle off a couple requests. And then I'm like, okay, got to go. It's back on with my day. I come to God too casually trouble with this one is prayer becomes something of a transaction that's too flippantly what about when we come to god too fearfully it looks a little bit like this and some of us know where that picture comes from come to god too fearfully like and this is when god's just not that into you when you go like well he's like this dad who like is listening to you while he's looking over the edge of his newspaper or like when he's holding his iphone like you're going you're not you're not really into listening to what I have to say right now. He's distracted, he's distant, and he's probably a little annoyed with you. These are these two extremes. We come to God too flippantly, or we come to him too fearfully. So how do you strike the balance between these two extremes? The word that John uses here is confidence. Did you catch that? This is the confidence that we have. It's right there in the middle of verse 14, and the Greek in this literally means prolonged conversation prolonged conversation it's the kind of talk you have with your kids when you have nothing else to talk about those weird but wonderful road trip conversations in the minivan the times when you're sitting out on the back deck and conversation just meanders it's these conversations that don't really have a road map but boy are they enriching do you ever talk to god like that that's john's point You want to be certain where you stand spiritually? Certainty from God follows intimacy with God. But not only do we come to him confidently, John says something else in here that is mind-blowing to me, is he says we come to him directly. He says if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Stop for a second. Let me ask you a question. Who do you pray to? Now, that sounds like Sunday school. I pray to God, of course, right? Like That makes sense. I pray to God. I talk to him. This is how Jesus taught the disciples to pray. He says, our Father who art in heaven. Paul describes this in Romans 8 when he says that our spirits cry out, Abba, which means Daddy. Daddy, Father. It's this very tender, fatherly tone that accompanies prayer. Hence John's words in verse 14. He hears us. What a confidence builder that is, that the creator God of the universe hears you when you pray now here's why this is so important. And I want to say this with sensitivity for those who have come out of different church traditions, especially those who have come out of a Roman Catholic background. What comes to mind when I ask, who do you pray to, actually reveals what you believe about Jesus' work on the cross. Okay, so track with me here for a minute. Like, it's great to say Like, God's your father. You can come to him. Come confidently. He hears you. Just come on in. Like, it's great to say that. But then there's this question, like, underneath all of that, where I go, how? Like, why? God's holy. I'm not. God's high up there. I'm way down here. God has no sin, and I'm steeped in it. What about me garners his favor? Why would the holy God of the universe ever welcome Brandon Marshall into his presence? Doesn't he know who I am? Who is able to give me access to the throne room of Almighty God? What a great question. Over the years, different church traditions have missed this very fundamental point. And it's what John wants this church to get so clearly, is that if you trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, meaning if you say that his blood is sufficient to make a guilty man innocent and a dead man alive alive, If that's you, then at that moment, the creator God of the universe looks at you as his perfectly holy adopted child. That's called justification. How does that happen? Listen to how the writer of Hebrews says this. If you're taking notes, this is Hebrews 10, 19. Since we have confidence, it's the same word in Greek that John just used, since we have confidence to enter the holy places By the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and sincere faith. Did you catch it? Where does that confidence come from? It's not from my swagger. It's not because I'm awesome. Where does it come from? By the blood of Jesus. I don't think we get how astounding that is. Forgiven sinners have a standing invitation in the throne room of almighty god because of what jesus has done for you because of jesus you don't have to confess to a priest you have a priest his name's jesus you don't have to ask anybody else to 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 pray for you as like something in between there's one mediator between god and man the man christ jesus you don't have to light a candle to some unknown saint you can go right to the creator god of the universe Now, I know that sounds very freeing or frustrating to you, depending upon your church tradition. And so my word for you is if that makes you uneasy, because that kind of upends a lot of things, how you think about God, please come talk to me. Because like John, I want this to be crystal clear for you. You can have confidence and certainty in a crazy world because you get to go to God directly. That's astounding. So we come confident, we come directly, and then this last little insight from verse 14, we come clearly go back to verse 14 here's what he says you caught that little nagging phrase in the middle that we're all tempted to skip over this is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and we're all like oh that's easy okay so that's like if i ask god for something and he doesn't give it to me that's like his little opt-out clause oh it just wasn't according to his will right how many of you have heard that before right you know this terrible medical diagnosis, or something terrible happens to you, or to somebody that you love, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and, you pray. and then some well-meaning but thoughtless Christian says, well, just wasn't as well. Okay, that can be poisonous and abusive, and so that's not what he's talking about here. So let's kind of dig into this a little bit. How do you find God's will? Okay, answer, we've got 20 more minutes left in this message, <laughs> and I could go another week about that one. So let me tell you what finding God's will is not. It's not this, like, mystical puzzle that you got to figure out. And I think a lot of Christians have bought into that without really knowing it. Because we use phrases like this, like, oh, i got to find his will. i got to put out fleeces, if you're thinking Old Testament. Or you go like, well, I've, I've got to knock on the doors. I've got to look for open doors and closed doors. and, and, and... Okay, so let's, let's demystify this a little bit. Um, there's there's two verses in the New Testament that talk explicitly about finding God's will, and they're both related. I'm going to read them to you and see if you can pick up how they're related. The first one is in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It says this, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Big theological word just means that you would be more like Jesus. Romans 12.2, It says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Do you pick up what they both have in common? Spiritual formation. There is no such thing as spiritual direction, finding God's will, without spiritual formation. It's a big deal. If you're going to equip a church to live in a crazy world, it isn't, hey, here's what God wants you to do, it's here's what God wants you to be. Here's my biggest problem with this like, mysterious puzzle-finding of God's will. First off, it's just not biblical. Okay? Nowhere in God's word does he say that his will is this mysterious little thing that he's trying to like hide from you. Because the second reason I have a problem with it is it's so out of character for who our God is. What kind of God would invite you to call him Father and then keep things from you? He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, look, become like Jesus... That's what I want for you. Get in my word. That's what I want for you. You will find what I want you to do the more you are formed by me. I want, here's my problem though, and maybe you're like this. I want God to direct me. I'm not so sure I want Him to change me. <laughs> I want God to get me through something. I'm not so sure I want Him to make me something, because that kind of hurts a little bit. My word for us just like John's word for this church, is God loves you too much to give you spiritual direction without spiritual formation. He will not lead you where you need to go until he makes you who you need to be. Prayer is not how I change God's mind to accept what I want. Prayer is how God changes my mind to accept what he wants. So super quick one-off application If you want to develop a more rich prayer life that gives you certainty about what God wants, start by asking him. Rather than coming to him flippantly with our cosmic genie and go, well, here's what I want. Go, God, show me what you want. Another want to take it a step further, get into his word. You will never, ever discover God's will for your life apart from God's word. Impossible. So when I say clearly, according to his will, that's what this means. Now, let's come up for a little bit. Here's what I want us to do. Um, I don't want to get to this point where we're talking about prayer and then take all that doctrine that we just walked through and leverage it as like a shame tactic and go, you don't pray enough. Pastors tend to do that sort of stuff, and it's not, not cool because nobody is changed long-term by shame tactics. Okay. We all know we don't pray enough. Okay? like We're all in the same boat here. Right? We know God wants more time with me. He wants me to be a more willing vessel for him to use. So instead I want to take all that doctrine that we just walked through and I'd rather just construct a giant picture for you, hold it up and say, in our emotionally charged, crazy world, what does it say about our God that he wants to be known by you? What kind of God would he have to be if he wants to be known by you. Not just that he knows you, but he wants to reveal himself to you. What kind of a God would that be? He'd have to be really loving. He'd have to be very kind. He'd have to be very gracious. And so standing at the edge of uncertainty, John's heart for this church is not to shame them for what they're not doing. It's to show them what they could be. And I kind of want to join him in that. Because when prayer becomes a transaction, what happens? God doesn't give me what I want, I'm out. When prayer becomes an obligation, what happens? I don't want to be with anybody who doesn't want to be with me, I'm out. And so John aims for this center point where he says, look, you come confidently. How do you come? You come confidently. Why can you come confidently? Because of who? Jesus. And so this is this first thing that John wants us to really understand. Certainty from God follows intimacy with God. That's the first truth to cling to, that God hears us. Truth number two, God protects us. God protects us. Let's look at verse 18. Some more great deep stuff in here. <laughs> and we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning. Ouch. Really quick, what's that mean? Doesn't mean that you don't sin ever, doesn't mean you never have mistakes, doesn't mean you don't backslide, doesn't mean that you're like sinless from the day you confess Christ. It just means that your life will be characterized by growing holiness. He says, So everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Did you notice the verb switch there? If you were here last week, this is really important. John describes Christians as everyone who has been born of God. He does it in the previous section, but here he switches, and he says, he who was born of God. That's a different verb tense in Greek, and we're going to see why that's important in just a second. So somebody is protecting somebody else, and the evil one doesn't touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So some dark, spooky stuff here. But there's one giant, unavoidable observation right out of the gate. And smack in the middle of verse 18, who is this he who was born of God? That's an interesting way of talking about somebody. Now, at first glance, your instinct might be like my instinct. And you go, well, that's another believer. He who was born of God protects. And I love that image because it's like believers locking arms with other believers, right? Doing battle together, not at each other, but for each other. But I think it's something better than that. And here's why. That verb tense where he says, he who was born of God, is in a different tense. Never ever in the New Testament does God's word talk about believers protecting other believers. We fight for each other. But protection is an action that's reserved for Christ alone. Now let's go back into this text and read it again, because this is actually really interesting. We know that everyone who has been born of God, that's you and me, does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, read Jesus, protects him, and the evil one doesn't touch him. Now I love what John is doing here. He's being gut-level honest with these Christians. He goes, look, the world is a dark place. It's under the power of the evil one. And you see that, don't you? Is that a question mark in anybody's mind this morning? Okay, no. Yeah, the world is a dark place. There's good in it, absolutely. There's beauty to be had. But all in all, this world is a dark place. But... And then you can't just hear the crescendo of these distant echoes of centuries of spiritual truths start to build Pharaoh's army behind Moses. Remember when they're trapped? What's Moses say? He says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be silent. Or Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. Those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. Or John's own words, one chapter earlier where he says, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus' own words from his last two days on earth, he says, in this world, yeah, you're going to have a ton of trouble, but take heart, I have what? Overcome the world. And John's point is, yes, the world is dark. Yes, the devil is at work. Jesus stands guard. That's a great truth to cling to in a world gone crazy. I hope that truth encourages you, but more than that, I hope it focuses you. Here's why. What's the opposite of feeling protected? Feeling afraid, right? Feeling vulnerable, feeling exposed. And so when John says, no, 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 you need to remember, you are protected. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be fearful. And let's step right into your news feed this morning for the last year, If there's one word, one emotion that has made the headlines, it's the notion of fear. Our world is afraid, and we're afraid of a billion and one different things. We give in to fear when circumstances or realities beyond our control rise up, and we don't know what to do with them. And our spiritual life is like a drop of water that falls on the the top of that mountain, and some people slide this way, and some people slide this way. That's why our world is so polarized, is because fear has just gone like, hmm, right? We've forgotten the fact that Jesus is actually at work, and it's heartbreaking to watch. And as a church, I never, ever, ever want to lose sight of the severity of the real problem, and I never, ever want to lose sight of the simplicity of the real solution. Like, I'm with you. I watch the news, and like I watch about what's happening in Afghanistan, okay? And if you don't know, like, Profound political turmoil. People are needlessly dying. And I watch what happens in Haiti. Like, there's an earthquake and there's people dying. And I watch what's happening in our own country. And like, political factions are ripping this whole thing apart. And my question is okay, who's going to go? <laughs> who's going to Afghanistan? Because there are people going to a Christless eternity. Who's going? Who's going to Haiti? Who's going to be the one that stands up in the middle of all the crazy and go, wait, 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 i got a better option. Can we just talk about Jesus for five minutes? Now, I know that sounds dismissive, and that's part of the problem. (laughs) Yes, our world is full of terrible things, and a virus is absolutely one of them, especially when it seems to be becoming more preventable. But let me remind you, at the risk of sounding dismissive, that nobody gets out of life alive. And let me urge you to take whatever passion you have whichever side of that mountainous divide you fall on, and extend that passion to include the hope of Christ so that people don't have to spend a life without purpose and an eternity without God. Some Christians would rather be right in their opinion than loving to their neighbor. And we forget that when you said yes to Jesus, what's loving to your neighbor is what's right. The real fear in our world will never be conquered by anything that this world offers. And so if your solution to fear is, wear a mask or you're going to die, or if your solution to fear is, don't ever wear a mask or you're going to take away your freedom, let me humbly suggest that you're both missing the point. You're overvaluing the weight of your opinion, and you're undervaluing the power of Christ. Every word that I spend about a worldly issue is a world that I don't spend on the sufficiency of Jesus. Yes, our world is dark, it is full of sinners, Sinners who beneath the writhing anger and the foment of all the stuff, beneath all of that, they're sinners who are afraid. And you have the solution. You have this peace bringing God who says, Look, come to me. I'll give you life. You don't have to be afraid of anything. Let's never lose sight of the severity of the real problem. And let's never lose sight of the simplicity of the real solution. Sin is the problem, Jesus is the solution. And so that's truth number two, God protects us. Truth number one, God hears us. Truth number two, God protects us. And now truth number three, God saves us. And for this, you can make a mental note. We're going to come right back to verse 20 and 21. But before we get there, I want to go back to the temple of Artemis for a second. Remember that we said that Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility. The high point of the calendar year in Ephesus was this one week in May, and you can call it Artemis Fest if you want to, if that helps you think about it. The whole city took the week off of work. Tourists came in from everywhere. The Agora, which was this giant two and a half acre. Outdoor mall with a food court right in the middle of the city was buzzing with activity. There's vendors and booths and shops stayed open late. Parties devolved into all-night sexually charged drunken celebrations to Artemis. Priests at the temple actually hired additional prostitutes to handle the influx of tourists and the demand. But the high point of Artemis Fests was this citywide parade. And it would start way on the edge of town, the far end. And as it meandered through the city streets, through neighborhoods, by lamplight, people would come out of their houses, and they'd bring their little statues to Artemis that they had collected over the years, and their paintings of Artemis, and these little clay sculptures of Artemis that Ephesus was known for. And by lamplight, they would all walk down to the harbor. Ephesus was a harbor town. And one by one, they would take their little statues, take their little sculptures that are paintings or their images, and they would dip them in the waters of the Aegean Sea, and they would restore Artemis' virginity for a year. And this was their hope, that by doing this, the gods would somehow be pleased. And then waiting for them at the front of the temple, though, this was the grand finale. They'd walk back around a hill on the north end, and they'd walk to the temple of Artemis, and then right in the front of the courtyard was a giant tree. (laughs) This giant tree, this symbol of fertility, the hope of health. And then to cap off Artemis Fest, pregnant women would run up and touch the tree, hope that their baby would be okay. Blind people would come and they'd run up and they'd touch the tree, hoping that they could have sight again, maybe this year. If your mom and dad were sick, you'd you'd run up and touch the tree on their behalf and hope that they could get healed and be restored. This is the atmosphere in which our spiritual great-great-grandparents grew up. Desperation and fear, and they need hope. Now here's the kicker. This tree was called the tree of eternal life. Here's John's words. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, and His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. And then this little holy tack on the end of verse 21. He says, little children... Keep yourself from idols. You see how John just takes all of that fear-ridden spiritual uncertainty that's embedded in Ephesian culture, and he points it right at Jesus, and he says, just look at him. Guys, we are no different than first century Ephesus. We have a billion and one temple courtyards and a billion and one giant trees that people are running up to and hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping. John's word for you, my heart for you, is that you would know that you're made for a whole lot more than just empty hope. You are made, you are created, you are loved by a God who just doesn't want to fill you with some sentimentalities or some empty rituals. He wants you to know. But there's a barrier in between that for a lot of us this morning. And I want to kind of conclude this teaching series by talking about it. Some of you, you believe that you're damaged goods. Some of you, you believe you've made too many mistakes. Right? You've looked at porn too many times. You got drunk one too often. If anybody knew your sexual history, like... <sighs> Some of you, you believe that you're damaged goods. You believe that you are too far gone. You've made a mess of it. Your thoughts are too dark. If anybody knew what you really thought, what you really felt, who you really are, no one would accept you. And if you've ever thought that, I want to talk to you for just a second. First off, you are not alone, and you need to know that. There is a God who knows you, he loves you, and he sees you. Beyond that, he wants to give you life. He doesn't just want to give you a little hope that lasts for one week in the middle of May like Artemis Fest. He doesn't just want to give you just another mountaintop that you can just have for a moment. He wants to give you eternal life. See, the great thing is that everything that John's saying to this church in Ephesus is exactly what we would just say today. Our God doesn't ask that you bring a sacrifice. Our God is the sacrifice, (laughs) And he says, I'm just going to offer myself Jesus' words. It's a verse that's very, very dear to me. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What that means is you don't have to clean up your stuff first. You don't have to get your life together first. You don't have to figure out all your questions first. God saw us in our moral ambiguity, in our uncertainty, in our fear, he doesn't say, "Hey, come to this temple after a parade." No, he comes to us in love. <laughs> that's the beauty of the gospel message. And I'd be remiss if, like, we just left this series and went, "Like, oh man, First John, that's great. A lot of really good information." And I think John's audience is standing at the same place that we are, at the edge of a lot of uncertainty. We want to know everything's going to be okay. We want to know everything's going to be all right. We want to know that it's all going to turn out right in the end. John just says, Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. Just hits it over and over and over and over again. There's no way to get rid of fear without Christ, there's no way to convert hope into actual knowledge without Christ. No way to cross over from death to life without Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone. And so, if you've walked with us through this last series, these last couple of months, and you're watching online, maybe this morning, and you don't know Jesus, I want to stop and I want to ask you maybe today could be the day. Maybe just sitting in your seat, just maybe by yourself, or pray with somebody who came with you and say, Okay, Lord, I'm yours. I'm actually yours. I want to give you my life with all my questions, all my uncertainty, all of my mistakes, all of my sin, all of my junk, and just say, here, you've already heard that this morning a couple of times. You heard an angel story. You've seen it in this text. You've heard it in our worship. And so I just want to go, okay, is that you? Is that really you? Let me pray. Lord, we praise you for your goodness. This world is so uncertain and it is so fear ridden. And yet you have given us confidence. You've given us certainty. You've given us life. Given us something we can cling to. That you hear us, you protect us and you save us. Father, we just ask for your help. For those in this room who know you, Lord, would you burn that fire a little hotter in our heart to go to these hard places and to do these hard things so that people would not have to spend a Christless eternity? God, for those in this room who don't know you yet, Spirit, would you work? I pray that they would know this is a safe place. You are a safe God. You are very, very good to us. Father, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.